So we're, we're in a series. Um, series is called Jesus Behaving Badly. This is week six. And uh, what we've been doing is going to some of those places in the Gospels where we see Jesus have some interaction, which at some level is somewhere between perplexing to like maybe even angering, frustrating, confusing. It's like, what is he saying? It seems like he's doing something inappropriate or saying something inappropriate. Um, Bertrand Russell, who was a famous uh, British philosopher, he died in 1970, brilliant guy, mathematician, um, he wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. And in, in his book, he, he said these words, there is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who was really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. And I would guess, if we were honest, probably some people in this room ha- have maybe wondered about that, maybe even thought that your, yourselves. You think, how, how could you believe in such a barbaric doctrine of eternal punishment? It's not just punishment, but eternal. Christopher Hitchens, the late... Um, also atheistic philosopher. He was in the group of people called the New Atheists. Um, And I think it was his book, um, God's Not Good, I think is the title of it. I can't remember right now. But he had a section where he said, you know what, if you go back to the Old Testament, at least the God of the Old Testament, when he, you know, when he killed his enemies, he, he buried them and they were fine. Jesus is so much more evil. When he talks about the wicked who died, then he says, now they still have to have the hell to look forward to. And so I utterly reject that. Now, as we think about this idea of, of hell, and if, if you're a Western modern thinker, we also have to ask some questions. What are some things that have gone into um, our concepts of hell? Let me show you a let me show you a picture. See if you know what this is. Anyone recognize this? What is it? from the Sistine Chapel. This is a, f- a Final Judgment by Michelangelo. And this is a painting which, in fact, let me zoom in. Um, I won't go into great detail, but it's, it's basically the day of final judgment from this medieval mind you know, perspective here. And he, he's painting this. And if you go down to like the bottom, this is where the damned are being dragged into hell. Some of them are having their skin filleted off of them. There's uh, bodies without just, just skin there. It's grotesque. I mean, it's, it's basically a medieval torture chamber. And of course, what we have to realize is Michelangelo's ideas were informed by writings like Dante's Inferno. And in that, Dante takes some biblical language and images and mixes it with some kind of Greek uh, mythology and creates this picture that I would submit to you is not very much at all like what the biblical authors are thinking of or talking about when they're speaking of the place of those in eternity who would reject God. Um, And so, understandably, a a lot of people reject the idea of hell. 
Um, groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, if you've ever um, maybe known someone or had a neighbor or a friend, one of the very first questions they will often ask if they want to get into a dialogue is, do you believe in literal hellfire? And they're horrified. People are burning for all of eternity. That's the gospel that you will embrace. Or, or there are groups of people which would say, well, I, I'm going to embrace something um, called universalism where everyone's going to get there. And so there are popular authors like Rob Bell. There have been thinkers in the past like Origen who, who, who've worked for this because they're so uncomfortable with the notion of what they think the Bible teaches, at least, about hell, that they're, they're, they're working toward this. Or, or even some Christians who, who uh, opt for what's called um, annihilationism, the idea that, yes, the person will suffer for a period of time, but then eventually... God will annihilate them. They, they just won't be in existence anymore. So it will be a, a limited period of suffering. And of course, what we want to do, again, this is always important, is say, what does the Bible really teach about it? Because that's, that's what I want the Bible to interrogate my views, not the other way around. What did Jesus really teach and really think about this? And so there are some objections. I mean, one objection is just the the duration of the punishment, right? If it's eternal punishment, and there's a number of different objections, I'll just give you one of those. But one common objection is it assumes that hell is sort of um, a cosmic eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing. You know what I mean by that? <laughs> um, the Old Testament law uh, of eye for eye, tooth for tooth is if you do something to me, you can't, I can't pay you back in a worse way. You know, you punch my tooth out, I can't, I can't you know, cut your hand off. Right? There's this equal uh, in, injustice. And so people kind of assume, well, if that's true, it seems like God's not being just because you think about it. It doesn't matter how many sins someone commits while they're on earth, they are finite. There's only a limited number. Could be 100, could be 100,000, could be 100 million, but it's still a limited amount. So how could it be just? For someone that, then whose crime is limited, but their punishment is eternal and un unlimited. Or another objection is just the methodology of Jesus using this as like a scare tactic. Um, anyone here remember, we were talking about it in the green room, the band earlier. Anyone remember back in the, I think it was like 90s, um, hell houses? No, no one? Oh, you poor people. Okay. We'll talk afterwards. A hell house, this is for real, I swear. Um, a hell house is something a church would put on, and it was around Halloween time, and you would, you would go in there, and you'd walk from room to room, and each room was just something horrific. I mean, there was like a botched abortion in one room, and the doctor and nurse are standing there, and the woman's screaming, or Joel was talking, like, there's like a car wreck, and the teenager's like dead from drinking. And it's like, each room you go to, and, and literally the goal of it was to scare the hell out of these kids. And then they would get done, and they'd walk into this nice, well-lit room, and it's like, would you like to receive Jesus? And, and they would like sit down with, this is for real, like this really happened. Um, and so, is that what Jesus is doing? Like, does Jesus have like this like hell house, but like in a story, and he's just trying to freak people out so much that they just sort of like, okay, okay, whatever, you know, I'll do anything. Because again, we, we look at that methodology in a hell house and we go, it doesn't seem very, something's wrong with that. That doesn't seem right, right? But is, is that consistent with Jesus? Because Jesus talks a lot about hell. 
In fact, if you, if you were to count every time in the whole Bible anyone talks about hell and add them up, Jesus still says more about hell than all of them. He talks about it a lot, a whole lot. So what is that about? Those are a couple objections. So the question for us becomes, first of all, on the justice one, what's the principle on which the idea that hell could in any way be justified if it is truly this eternal consequence for um, people. And I want to show that Jesus actually has a very, a very nuanced understanding of what's going on when a person rejects God and intentionally moves toward a, a, uh, a life and an eternity which is self-referential. He has a very nuanced understanding of it. It's not Dante's Inferno. It's something very, very different than that. So let's do this. I want to read this story. Um, You know this one, right? This parable. The rich man and Lazarus. Jesus tells... Now, before we read it, again, just a reminder. This is a parable, okay? Parables are not actual historical events. Does that make sense? This this is a made-up a uh, mini, mini tale uh, used as kind of teaching pedagogy to get to a certain end, to have them learn something. But this is, this is a parable. It's made up. These aren't actual historical characters. And we can oftentimes you know, forget that and think, I wonder what he was thinking. No, he wasn't thinking. There wasn't a real guy. This is a parable, okay? So let's read the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And this is in Luke 16, Uh, And we'll do 19 through 31 here. So it says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day, sumptuously. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked the sores, The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you had in your lifetime received your good things. Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is in comfort here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not Hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
Interesting story that Jesus tells. Um, what's the real difference between these two guys? That becomes the immediate question. Is what's the difference? Because, you know, you might be tempted to think early on in the story, well, one guy's blessed. He must be serving God. The other guy has a life that's not very good. He must be disobedient. God, but okay, that theory is kind of blown out of the water from what we see happen here. What's the real difference? It's not their money, all right? Jesus... Uh, all throughout scripture, people with money are not condemned. People who are poor are not condemned, necessarily. It's not the health. It's, it's not like, oh, they you know, didn't have enough faith or you know, whatever it might be. None of that is there. So um, first, there's, there's a clue to what's going on. And, and Jesus does it very, very carefully. And the careful reader of Jesus will have an immediate question come to mind if you've read his 40-plus other parables. Jesus tells like over 40 of them. And what's so interesting is every time he tells a parable, he starts it like this. There was a man, or there were two sons, there was a farmer, there was a woman, there was a, okay. He always said, you know, you know what he never does? He never names them. He never names them. This is the one parable, it stands out like a sore thumb. Wait a minute, why does he give one of these guys a proper name and not the other guy? And that's not the standard way of doing it. So the, the careful reader is immediately going, something's there. Like, if it's, if it's weird, it's important. <laughs> this is important for this reason. This is the only one. Um, then there's the obvious counterpoint that he leaves the other, guy's, other guy nameless. So first we have to ask this, why did the rich man go to hell? Do we know anything about, was it insider trading? Was he in We have no clue. It doesn't even, it, it, it's, it's not important it's not stated there. See, what is the one man's name? The guy who's mentioned? Lazarus. Now, names always mean something. The name Lazarus means God is my help. Or you would say God is my foundation, God is my salvation. Basically, I am depending wholly on God. So that should make the reader immediately go, he seems to be... Con they're contrasted in every way, rich, poor, healthy, sick. They're opposites, right? And one guy is, God is my identity and foundation. And it, it lets the reader go, oh, oh, that's why. It's not because of, again, stealing or violence or anything like that. And what Jesus is getting to initially is what sends a person to hell it's not some action they do. It's not a behavior. It's not anything like that. What sends a person to hell is if they make anything but God your help. To make anything but God your center, your foundation, your core, your salvation, whatever word you want to say. The reason the rich man didn't have a name is because what had he built his identity on? I mean, you kind of get that by the description. Yeah, linens and purples and fine foods. So either his position, his, that's his identity was that. The point being, when that's taken away, what's left? <laughs> he was that. His very identity is gone. So he doesn't even have a name. Because your name is your identity. That's who you are. He has no identity because of what he built his whole identity on. Um, Soren Kierkegaard, he was a uh, philosopher, Christian, kind of existential 
philosopher, he wrote a book called Sickness Unto Death. And in it, his, one of his goals was he said, I want to come up with a definition of sin. <laughs> like, what is it really? Essentially, what is it at its core? And he concluded this. He said, sin is essentially building your identity on anything else but God. And there were some objections. They said, well, wait a minute, but breaking God's law, that's a sin. And he goes, yeah, that's true. Breaking God's law is a sin. But is that, does that really get to the essence? Because here's the problem. There were a whole group of people called the Pharisees. Did they break the laws of God? Not always. Some were meticulous about it. In fact, Paul said that, right? Um, so th- there has to be something deeper. It has to be more than just not breaking laws in some way. And so what we realize is a person can live a good moral life and almost begin to think, my identity's on my morality, and so I almost think that like God's in my debt. <laughs> almost like that he owes me something because of the moral purity of my life in some way. And so building, building my identity, even on my moral performance, is a corruption It's that uh, corruption that he talks about here. And so even if I take a good thing, living a moral life, that's a very good thing. That's great. I hope most people live moral lives. That would be wonderful. I wish more people did. That's a good thing. But the minute you make it the ultimate thing, it corrupts you. So it's good, but it can't be ultimate. Now, pause for a second. Um, what's the deal with the fire language in hell? Ever wondered about that? I mean, that's just like, what is, what is that about? So there's a word that we often... Jesus uses this word probably more than any other when he speaks of hell. Have you heard the, have you heard the word Gehenna before? Gehenna? He uses it to refer to this place, this ultimate place of, uh, of torment. Let me go to an image here. Um, and show you kind of what's, here we go. So this is um, digital, kind of like a topography of Jerusalem. Um, see if I can zoom in a little bit. Is that, can you see that okay? So like the, where the gold is, is where like the current walls of the city are. This is just the topography, so there's no buildings, but you're seeing basically what the land looked like when they first got it. So that's where the current walls are. This piece that sticks out right here, this would have been David's kingdom. It's Solomon who goes up and builds the larger you know, kingdom up there, all that sort of thing. But when you think about Jerusalem, Jerusalem is sort of shaped, and the way they build architecture and all that sort of thing is largely around, there are three valleys that kind of give shape to the um, to the city. The first one is the biggest... Can you see this little thing on here? Okay. So this long and a very deep valley, it's called the Kidron Valley. So up here, uh, it's a very steep decline. Um, this is the largest valley. And then you have the Tyropean uh, Valley right here. And then this kind of one off the southern, southwestern part of the city. Do you see that? It's kind of the the darkest there, that's called the Hinnom Valley, Gihinom, okay? It's the Hinnom Valley. Well, what's so interesting about this is if you go back to um, Second Kings 
and this is like 600 years before Jesus, there was this king named Manasseh, and he was the king of Jerusalem. He was an apostate king, and he, he actually um, started worshiping the Canaanite god Molech, and he introduced this worship of Molech into the Israelites as well. And Molech was, Molech was the god of the underworld, the god of the dead. And so the way that you would appease this god is by offering the blood of babies to him. And so as a result, um, in the Hinnom Valley, Manasseh built state-sponsored altars, numerous ones there in the, in the Hinnom Valley where they would offer these babies, Israelite babies, to Molech. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, as you can imagine, extremely angered by that. He sends the prophet Jeremiah to them to talk about how Manasseh and the Israelites have, and here's a language he uses, he says, they have lit the fires of Hinnom to consume the innocent. Did you hear that? Manasseh and the Israelites have lit the fires in the Hinnom Valley to consume the the innocent. And God's so angry that he brings judgment on both the Israelite people and Manasseh for this heinous, disgusting act. And the form of the judgment is this. He says, tell them this. I'm going to send the ancient nation of Babylon, and they're going to come in, and they're going to attack the city of Jerusalem. They're going to besiege it. They're going to destroy the walls. They're going to break everything down. And then the people who die in the battle, both soldiers and then just whatever citizens happen to be killed in the process, their slain bodies, their corpses, are going to be thrown into the valley of Hinnom. Remember where all that, all that took place? And it's, it's as recompense for what they had done to these babies and in disobedience to Yahweh. And so this horrifying image, it's, it's burned deep into the Jewish mind, the Valley of Hinnom. It's, it's a place where unfaithfulness to Yahweh has happened, where human sacrifice has happened. Awful things happen. And of course, the question is, who lit the fires of Gihinom? Israel. So they have the sense of like, that was our responsibility. We did that. Israelites did. God's own people. They perverted worship, called evil good, killed innocent. Life lit the fires of Hinnom. So what's God's judgment? God's judgment for doing it is to give them the very thing they did. You want blood in the valley of Hinnom? Okay. You're going to get it, and you're going to get it in a full way. God's justice, he, he's not going to allow evil to remain in the city. And so it's going to be removed from the city. And he uses that language a lot. You're going to be removed. In fact, he, he, he tells the Israelites before he gives them the land, like a long, long time ago, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm removing the Canaanites and all these horrible people there. I'm, the land is spitting them out, is the language that you use. I'm removing them from the land because of their evil deeds. And then he says, but if you do the same stuff they do, I will remove you. The land will vomit you out. I, I, I will remove you from my good world is, is sort of the picture there <clears throat> that's going on. So <clears throat> um, this Hinnom, Gihenom, or Gehenna, it became a dump, uh, according to tradition. And it, it's, it's sort of a smoldering trash heap. It's, it's where people would bring all of the refuse uh, there were sometimes you know, dead animal bodies down there, but it was, it was smoldering. It was, again, sort of their, their dump. And it became a symbol 
in the Jewish mind of that day of final justice when God will remove all of the ruined things from his good creation, remove them and, and put them outside. Does that make sense? So it sort of like became a, a picture of that, a reminder of, oh yeah, one day God is going to take all of the ruined things and remove them from his good creation because he's not going to allow ruined things to continue ruining things. And so when Jesus talks about Gehenna, there's this whole, I mean, they probably smell it on a bad day. We live in a spot where like there's something in Greeley that blows and we get like the cows, you know, smell kind of, so it's like, it's pungent in my mind when you talk about a cow farm, right? And it's pungent in their minds when you would talk about Gehenom or Gehenna. It's disgusting. That's where everything that's ruined goes. So you see how they, it's like they map on this horrible, awful place with all of these associations and histories of unfaithfulness to God and ruined things, and they map it onto what happens to a human person who absolutely rejects God, wants nothing to do with him, and becomes a, a, a turned-in-upon-oneself, ruined self. Do you see the connection there? That's what he has in mind. So when he's even talking about this, this whole fire concept, this is kind of where <clears throat> they're going. So here's Jesus' point. The fires of hell, when you use that language, and we'll talk a little bit more about what exactly that means, but the fires of hell, they're just the natural outworkings of all of the little fires in our hearts. It's like we have all these little fires going on inside of us, these places that are broken. And if we let those go to their logical conclusion, it's just a big fire that we are there. Listen to um, C.S. Lewis. He, he writes in uh, Mere Christianity, talking about this very idea, and I think he's, he's cluing into where Jesus goes in several of these passages. He writes, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever, and this must be either true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live, say, 70 years only. But I had better bother about, very seriously, if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years won't be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for what it would be. Do you see the point? If humanity goes on forever and in a trajectory, like we're all going in a direction, and I have these parts of me that I do not allow Christ to restore, and they remain unchecked, can you imagine how hideous of a person we would be? And that's what he's saying. Um, <clears throat> there's a medical doctor, Gerald May. Uh, he wrote a book called Addiction and Grace. He writes a lot about uh, addiction and how it works. And, and he, he points out and says that addicts, people who are, who are addicted, they find themselves, he says, in a self-imposed prison, which is an interesting idea. He says they're stuck. They're in a prison-like like existence, but it's self-imposed. There's no one exterior to them keeping them there, right? And I think that's also getting closer to what we have here. 
One of um, my, my, my wife loves reality shows. Just, I mean, watch it, documentaries and reality shows all the time. And she watched this one. And at first I kind of, it was interesting, but it honestly became like bothersome to me. I didn't like it. And, and it was Hoarders. Have you, have you seen this show? It's like, I don't enjoy it at all. Because what's so interesting, that, so it's, it's centered around these people. It's an episode of like 60 minutes, and there's usually like one or two people. And, and they have this actual uh, mental condition of hoarding disorder, which is the fear of letting go being the obsession, and the hoarding of unneeded items as compulsion. And so they bring in like a psychiatrist or a psychologist. They bring in an um, organizer to help organize the house and someone who's like a super cleaner because it's extremely <clears throat> unclean. And it's usually like an intervention. And so it's usually like one person living alone. And typically there's been some horrible tragic event that happened in their past that has caused them to, I can't let go of things. Maybe oftentimes they lost somebody, the very dear to them, and it's a tragic story. And so they hold on to everything you could imagine, trash. It just, it, it's, it's sad. It's absolutely tragic. And what's so fascinating, every time I have seen this, typically they have lost relationships because of this. A son says, I can't live in this house. There's literally nowhere for me to sleep. And so I, I, I'm moving out because you won't clean up. Or a parent or a, or a spouse says, I, I can't live here. I'm leaving. And what's so, what's so tragic is when they come in and they start saying, okay, let's start cleaning up. And they've got a lot of help. And they start throwing it away. Even because the person realizes this is not good. Like, I'm not healthy. It's not clean here. I've lost relationships. Closest relationship, my, my spouse, my child lost him. Do you want us to help you? Yes. But you know what happens when they start actually throwing things away? Oftentimes the person says, no, 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 I'm done. Stop. And as the viewer, you're like, this is, this is crazy. This is, your, this is the most important relationship in the world to you. That's a piece of garbage. Why, I mean, like, why would you possibly do it? And, and it's sort of, again, it's tragic, and you think, how does it make sense? But then what I realized is this person's identity has become so intertwined with their stuff, even a piece of garbage. Their identity is built on, absolutely intertwined with this stuff, so much so that they will stay in a hellhole of a prison, and no one is making them stay there. And to the outside person viewing, you just think, but you could have so much better of a life. You have people wanting to help you. But the identity is so intertwined, it can't be separated. Because as soon as that stuff were to go away, if that really is their identity, they don't exist anymore. They don't have a name like this rich man. This is why C.S. Lewis constantly speaks of hell as being locked from the inside. I think he's absolutely right. He's realizing it's not, a, it's not a torture chamber, a dungeon. It's a self-imposed prison. And all of a sudden you go, oh, that makes perfect sense. We know lots of things, addictions and disorders, where there are self-imposed prisons. And, and people in the middle of addictions or these sorts of things say, this isn't good, but I can't imagine being without it. I can't imagine being in another place, and then they begin to self-deceive. Well, no one really understands, and it's not as bad as everyone really says it is, and I can handle it. That's hell. That's hell. If that's what hell is like, and I think we have good reason to believe it is, 
we have confirmation even in this text in more detail. Let me go back to the, uh, to the text here. Some interesting <clears throat> observations that we see um, in the text. Let's see, I think in verse 24. Uh, Number one, commentators have noticed for years in this passage that the man in the parable... Um, he's so oblivious to reality. He, he engages in denial. Um, he engages in blaming. Um, Lazarus is in heaven. He's at the place of honor. When it says he's, he's at Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, if you were at a party, the place of honor would be right next to the best guest there. So he's saying he's at a place of absolute honor. He's being honored by everyone. And yet, verse 24, what do we still see? He's still ordering Lazarus around like he's a servant, like he's his lackey. Hey, have him go get me some water. What? Like, commentators have said for years, that's, that'd be so inappropriate to see someone at a place of honor and then tell them to go get you water. Like, they're still just nobody. You're still on the very bottom of the rung. Notice that he doesn't ask to get out of hell. He just asks for Lazarus to come in. He, he never asks to leave. And then he strongly insinuates that God didn't give him enough information. Because he says, hey, would you uh, send, once again, send him on an errand for me, please, to go tell my brothers. See, the assumption is, if I would have known more, it's not my fault. I'm, I'm not here for anything I did. Once again, people are taking advantage of me. I mean, do you see it? There's all of these subtle things that Jesus puts into the story to say, this man is oblivious, even at this point right now. And he doesn't have an identity because the money, the possessions, the power, that's all gone, and there's nothing left but this complaining, grumbling, blaming thing. That's all that is left there. So here's the summary statement about hell. Hell is just a freely chosen identity. I would suggest Jesus is saying. Hell is a freely chosen identity based on something else besides God that goes on forever and ever and ever and just gets more internally focused, internally contorted around self. It's interesting, the two most common images that, that Jesus uses when he speaks of this place or whatever it is um, are flames and darkness. Uh, and, you know, are these literal flames? Uh, I don't know. Um, I kind of tend to think no. That doesn't mean there isn't something real behind them. There's, I think there's something worse than flames. I think flames, and because if you think about it, Jesus calls it darkest darkness and there's flames all over. Can those two things exist in the same spot? <laughs> if you have flames, you have light. You don't have darkest darkness. Okay? So he seems to be getting at something. There's something else behind that. So that shouldn't like, reassure people. But I think he, he's getting, what is he talking about? Well, what is it that, that flames do? And we see this all throughout the Old Testament when the prophets talk about the day of the Lord is coming and things are, and he's going to, uh, flames are coming. This will be burned up. It's the, it's the idea of, consuming and disintegration. Imagine if you take a big log and you place it on, in a fire. What happens to it? It doesn't disappear. 
but it disintegrates. Why? Because it's consumed by something. And so it's actually disintegrating. And the darkness typically speaks to isolation. So I think it's much worse than flames and darkness. <laughs> Disintegration and isolation uh, is, is, a, is a tragic reality for humanity, which is made to not be alone. <laughs> you know, it's not good that man be lonely, read early on, and we're called into this family, we're called into community. Many of us who have experienced even some isolation during these last six, seven months, we know, and it's not like I'm not even in a prison cell, but I know how disintegrating that is to me when I have to experience that. The mental health issues that are on the scene, why? Because it's, it's, I'm disintegrating. We're disintegrating. And that's the picture. He says, hell, it's, it's a level of disintegration that you can't imagine, but no one imposes it on you. You impose it upon yourself. This, this parable, I think, speaks to the disintegrating, isolating work of sin that begins right here, right now, <laughs> in deep places in my life that only God even knows and is aware of. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, penned these words. The damned are, in one sense, successful to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. In the long run, the answers to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them fresh start, smoothing every difficulty, offering them every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. You guys, that's tragic. See, that's why I think as <clears throat> you know, we, we wrestle and look at something that I don't like looking at. I mean, I, I'm never like, I'm going to do a Bible study on hell today for my devotions. You know, that's sort of thing. Like, probably not many of us go there. If you do, there might be something wrong with you. Um, I don't like it. I think it's horrible. But it's this reality of if this is true, and if I'm called to love my neighbors, like, what are the implications there? What are the implications of this reality that there may be people who are heading down this path on their own? No one's forcing them to do it, but that should break our hearts. That should make us say, I, what can I do, God? What can I do? Let me look at one last kind of objection, and that's the whole, you know, the whole hell house thing. <laughs> um, is Jesus just using fear to get people to like sign on the dotted line so you know he's got them on his list kind of thing um does he just tell these awful stories um to like threaten people you better do this or i will you know whatever it might be well think about this um what is the difference between a threat and a warning is is there a difference between a threat and a warning um if you go to your doctor and your doctor says, if you don't have this procedure, um, you're going to die. You have, you have cancer. Is that a threat or a warning? Yeah. Think about it this way. A warning speaks to the natural consequences of an action. Just the natural end of the road, right? A threat speaks to an unnatural 
arbitrary consequence that I tack on if you do something. I'll give you an example. My youngest son, um, and this sort of thing has happened before. If, if I were to say to him, uh, Talon, if you eat that entire bag of cookies, I'm going to ground you. Is that a threat or a warning? It's a threat because it, I don't have to be grounding. I could, uh, I could put him in his room. I, it's arbitrary why I chose grounding, right? I'm tacking it on. If I say, Talon, if you eat that entire bag of cookies, you're going to spoil your appetite and maybe get sick. Is that a threat or a warning? That's the natural consequence of doing that. When Jesus talks about hell, he's not threatening them with something he's going to impose if you don't. He's saying, if you build your identity apart from me in your own direction, which goes on for eternity, don't forget, it will look like hell. And I'll paint the the worst picture you could possibly imagine. It's going to be horrible if you self-impose that in your life. And see, what I think it's important for us to see is for me to ask the question, what am I building my life on? Is there any part of my identity which is getting really tangled up in some other part of my life and then consuming that by putting it at the center of my life? Because if I do that, I will spoil my eternal appetite for God. I will spoil it. And this warning comes out of a heart of love. You see the person of Jesus. Guy talks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible all combined. But this is the Jesus who is warning us about the destructive patterns in your and my lives that lead to whatever word you want to use. It's going to lead to that. But this is the same Jesus who put, turns his face toward Jerusalem we're told, to take all of the consequences of sin on himself. This is the physician who chose to take the sickness upon himself so that we could be made well. Wow. This is coming out of love. You warn people you love not to be neurotic and scared about it because he says you can be absolutely certain, (laughs) absolute certainty. And so over these next few minutes as the band plays this song, I want us to to go back to that physical reminder of the one who would do anything so that we, our eternal destiny, would be with him, so that I would be formed into the image of Christ, that my identity would be built on him. And then he says, flourishing life. I've come to give life and to the full. Man, that's... That's an awesome promise. So as you go to the tables around the room, gluten-free in the back, grab the items. Don't take them yet. Just hold them. Go back to your seat. Let's sing this song, and then at the end of the song, we'll all take together, okay? There's probably no more sacred moment for followers of Jesus in the week to consume the bread and the wine because it's that reminder of what Jesus has saved us, not just from, but saved us to, saved us for. That's our goal. And that's what we look forward to. We long for Christ's return. We long for his kingdom to come. And this is a reminder it'll happen. He's made a promise good in his blood. His body broken for us on the cross. Let's take the bread.
and the new covenant in his blood, the cup. Heavenly Father, we, we stand amazed at what you would do for us, what you have done for us, and long and look forward to what you will do for us at the restoration of all things. And in the meantime, God, fill us with your spirit. Build your church. Thank you for the brothers and sisters we have in this room. Show us how to love well. And may that be a testimony to our world that we have been with Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here, guys. Always good being with you. Have a great rest of your week.